Chapter Ten of Three Years in the Federal Cavalry by Willard Glazier, Part Two. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Jonathan Limebrook of Lake Elsinore, California. Chapter Ten, Chancellorsville and Stoneman's Raid, Part Two. Kilpatrick at Louisa Courthouse. He marches upon Richmond. Bold advance near the city. Important captures. Retreat over Meadow Bridge. Destructions. Bushwhackers. Happy rencounter. Safe arrival at Gloucester Point. Public prints. Battle of Chancellorsville. Heroism and defeat. Stonewall Jackson falls. Hooker injured. Retreat. Orders. Kilpatrick at Louisa Courthouse. While this work was going on, Kilpatrick was ordered to lead the Harris Light into Louisa Courthouse, which he did in a gallant manner. The inhabitants, taken by surprise, were greatly terrified at our approach and entry into the place, but finding themselves in the hands of men and not fiends, as they had been wont to regard us, and receiving from us neither disrespect nor insult, soon dispelled their needless fears. We remained in town until two o'clock p.m., tearing up railroad track and destroying railroad property, as well as commissary and quartermaster stores found in public buildings. At the hour above named, we were ordered out to support the 1st Maine Cavalry in a spirited skirmish with Rebel Cavalry. In this engagement, our Troy Company had one sergeant wounded and one corporal and four men taken prisoners. By 11 o'clock at night, General Stoneman's forces had reached the neighborhood of Thompson's Crossroads, where the command was broken up into several independent expeditions to scour the country in every direction, and to destroy as completely as possible all the enemy's means of supply. Colonel Percy Wyndham, with the 1st New Jersey and 1st Maine, was sent south to Columbia on the James River to destroy the great canal which feeds Richmond from the west. Lieutenant Colonel Davis, with the 12th Illinois, was dispatched to the South Anna River in the neighborhood of Ashland Station on the Fredericksburg and Richmond Railroad to destroy the important bridges in that vicinity. General Buford was to march westward and do all the mischief he could, but it was reserved to Kilpatrick to advance upon Richmond, enter the rebel capital if possible, and lay waste the public property and communications there. Sunday, May 3. We marched steadily after leaving General Stoneman, long into the night, halting only long enough for a little refreshment and rest. At two o'clock this afternoon the command, which consists only of about three hundred men well mounted, was marched into a pine thicket, where we were ordered to destroy or throw away all our extra clothing and blankets, with everything which we could possibly spare, 
to lighten the burdens of our horses. This halt in the shade of the pines was very refreshing both to men and beasts. The sun is very warm and shelter is very agreeable. Leaving the fragrant shade, we moved on until night. We are now within fifteen miles of Richmond, where vigilance is the price, not only of liberty, but of life. Sergeant Northrop, while on a scout to the front, was fired upon by a guerrilla, undoubtedly, and wounded. Colonel Kilpatrick and Major Henry E. Davies, Jr., slept on their arms in the road with the men. Very little sleep was had through the night, but what we did get was precious. At two o'clock on the morning of the fourth, we resumed our hazardous journey toward the rebellious city. Had it not been for the intrepidity of our leader and the utmost confidence of the men in his ability to accomplish whatever he undertook, it would have been impossible to proceed. Fearing, as we did, the desolation and sorrows of Libby Prison, ignorant of the forces we might soon encounter, and the ambuscades that might be laid for us, we nevertheless pushed bravely on, because we were bound to follow our chief, be the consequences what they might. Soon after daybreak we came down upon Hungary Station, on the Fredericksburg and Richmond Railroad. Here we destroyed the telegraph lines, tore up the track, and burned the depot. Near the station we ran into the enemy's pickets, the first we have encountered since leaving our main column. Only two of them were discovered, and they fled so rapidly that it was useless for us to try to overtake them with our jaded horses. They kept generally about three hundred yards ahead of us and as we had orders to fire on no one, unless positively necessary, they proceeded unmolested in the direction of Richmond. Having arrived within five miles of the city, we advanced more cautiously. There was good reason for this, for our condition was critical. There we were, only a remnant of a regiment, many miles away from any support, with no way to retreat, as we had burned all the bridges and ferries in our rear, nearer to the Confederate capital than ever any Union troops were before, and ignorant of the forces that garrisoned it. Still on we moved, looking only to our leader, who seemed especially inspired for the work assigned him. We soon arrived in sight of the outer line of fortifications, and moved steadily upon them. To our surprise we found them unmanned, and we safely passed in towards the second line of defense. We had scarcely entered these consecrated grounds when General Winder's assistant adjutant general pompously rode up to the head of our column and inquired, What regiment? Astonishment and blight accompanied the answer of Kilpatrick, who said, the second new york cavalry adding and you sir are my prisoner ceremonies were short and kilpatrick very quickly appropriated winder's favorite charger upon which the captured adjutant was mounted when he made his fatal challenge 
we continued still to advance, until the smoke from workshops and the church steeples were plainly visible, and we began to think that we were about to enter Richmond without opposition. We were now within two miles of the city, and yet we halted not until we had reached the top of a hillock just before us. Here was an interesting scene. There stood a handful of cavalrymen, far within the fortifications of a hostile city, almost knocking at the door of her rebellious heart. On every hand were frowning earthworks, and just ahead of us the coveted prize. But just at the foot of the hill on which we stood, we discovered a battery of artillery, drawn up in the road, supported by infantry, ready to receive us. It became evident that we had advanced as far as prudence would permit us. We had also reached and secured the road to the meadow bridge across the Chickahominy, over which we were expected to escape, and which it was very desirable to destroy. These facts or circumstances decided the direction of our march. We moved leisurely on our way, the cavalry refusing to give us even the semblance of a pursuit. Having crossed Meadow Bridge, it was set on fire. Following the railroad a little distance, a train of cars was met and captured, much to the astonishment of the bewildered conductor who was in charge of government stores en route for Richmond. After firing the cars, the engine was set in motion under a full head of steam, and the blazing and crackling freight went rushing on until it reached the burning bridge, when the whole thing well-nigh disappeared in the deep mud and water of the sluggish stream. No particular line of escape seemed to have been agreed upon. Our main object was to do all the mischief in our power to the rebel cause. The men were much exhausted for want of rations and rest, but you could not hear a word of complaint from one of them. They were all inspired with the greatness of the deeds which they were required to perform, feeling much as Napoleon's legions must have felt when he said to them, The eyes of all Europe are upon you. Sustained by such considerations, and cheered by the voice and still more potent example of their leader, they pressed onward, resolved to do all within their power, and then, if the worst came, they could go to Libby or Belle Isle with a pleasing consciousness that they had done their duty. All night we marched, with only an occasional and brief rest. On the morning of the 5th, we arrived at the Pamunkey River. Here we captured a rebel train laden with commissary stores, just the prize we coveted. After appropriating a generous supply for the day, the remnant was reduced to ashes. All the serviceable animals captured were added to our cavalcade, and the prisoners paroled and sent on their way rejoicing. The river was crossed on a one-horse platform ferry-boat, whose capacity was only twenty horses and their riders. Considerable precious time was consumed in this tedious operation. 
When the last man had reached the desired shore, the ferry boat was destroyed, and the column resumed its line of march. About four o'clock in the afternoon, a cold rainstorm set in, borne on the flapping wings of a chilly wind. Cold, hungry, and fatigued, we still pressed onward, suffering not a little. Fearful of encountering heavy forces of the enemy on the main thoroughfares, we filed along the byways and neglected paths, where we were frequently immersed in almost impenetrable bushes, dripping with rain. May 6. Today we crossed the Mattapony at Aylitz, burning the ferry behind us. We then took the road to Tappahannock, a small village on the Rappahannock. We had not proceeded far in this direction before we met and captured another wagon train, laden with ham and eggs and other luxuries, which had been smuggled across the Rappahannock. This, of course, was thoroughly confiscated, appropriated, and destroyed. A consultation of officers was here instituted, and it was decided to try to reach Gloucester Point, opposite Yorktown, which we knew was in possession of Union forces. Not far from King and Queen Courthouse, we captured and burned a depot of ordnance and several wagons. We have been much annoyed by bushwhackers on the way today. Their plan is to hide in the thick bushes and fire upon the rear of our column as we pass, in places where it is not possible to pursue them without much loss of time which is too precious to be wasted thus. Several men and horses have been wounded by these skulkers during the day. As night was settling down upon us, we discovered a body of cavalry in our front, and quickly made preparations to meet them. Kilpatrick deployed skirmishers and advanced in column of squadrons. Our supposed enemies were also prepared to fight, and a spirited conflict was anticipated. Several shots were exchanged when the contending parties discovered their mutual mistake. Our opponents proved to be the 12th Illinois, which, after leaving the main column at Thompson's Crossroads, had swept down through the enemy's communications about Ashland Station, destroyed several important bridges and some stores, and was now, like ourselves, endeavoring to reach Gloucester Point. This rencounter was very pleasing. Our column was greatly increased and encouraged. We needed this stimulus exceedingly, for we had been marching all day through a cold drizzling rain, which had dampened our ardor somewhat and chilled our blood. Many of our horses had given out by the way and were killed to prevent their falling into the enemy's hands. A few days of rest and care will so recruit such horses that they become again serviceable. Their places were filled by those horses and mules which were brought to us by the contrabands, which all along our journey flocked to our standards, and by such other animals as were captured by our flankers and advance guards. Exhausted as most of us were, no bivouac fires were kindled until we reached our lines of pickets from Gloucester Point, 
where we were received by our Union comrades in the midst of demonstrations of admiration and joy. Here we had a splendid rest. May 7. This morning, after a more sumptuous breakfast than we had had for many days, we crossed the York River to Yorktown, where we encamped. We are now, as it may well be supposed, the lions of the day. Nothing is too good for us. We have the freedom of the town, and the subject of our raid is the theme of private and public speculation. In our travels we have captured and paroled over three hundred prisoners, burned five or six railroad bridges, destroyed all the ferries on our route, captured and demolished two wagon trains, burned five or six depots of stores, destroyed one railroad train besides stations and telegraph offices, and have torn several miles of track. We have taken over one hundred and fifty horses, some of them the finest in the country. The following extract from the Yorktown Gazette will more fully explain the importance of our expedition. Quote, we have heard startling accounts of the prodigies of valor performed by Stuart's cavalry in Virginia and the bands of Morgan in the West, that they showed true valor, nice discretion, and great powers of endurance we will not for a moment question. But the exploits of our cavalry in the late expedition in the rear of Lee's army surpasses anything ever achieved on this continent. Especially are the adventures of the 2nd New York Harris Light Cavalry and the 12th Illinois almost incredible but they bear with them trophies that fully confirm the record of their daring. They penetrated within the outer lines of fortification at Richmond to within less than two miles of the city and captured prisoners and trophies there. They cut all the communications between that city and Lee's army, traveled two hundred miles, and lost only thirty men. Many of them have changed horses a number of times on the route. Whenever theirs got tired, they laid hold of anything that came in their way that suited them better. The contrabands flocked to them from every quarter. They would take their master's teams from the plough and their best horses from the stables. Some of them were almost frantic with delight on the appearance of the Yankees. Over three hundred found their way to this place. Their services are all needed at this present time. End quote. The following report of Brigadier General King will be read with interest. Quote, Yorktown, Virginia, May 7, 1863. To Major General Halleck. Colonel Kilpatrick, with his regiment, the Harris Light Cavalry, and the rest of the 12th Illinois have just arrived at Gloucester Point, opposite this post. They burned the bridges over the Chickahominy, destroyed three large trains of provisions in the rear of Lee's army, drove in the rebel pickets to within two miles of Richmond, and have lost only one lieutenant and thirty men, having captured and paroled upward of three hundred prisoners. 
Among the prisoners was an aide of General Winder, who was captured with his escort far within the intrenchments outside of Richmond. The cavalry have marched nearly two hundred miles since the third of May. They were inside the fortifications of Richmond on the fourth, burnt all the stores at Aylet Station on the Mattapony on the fifth, destroyed all the ferries over the Pamunkey and the Mattapony, and a large depot of commissary stores near and above the Rappahannock, and came here in good condition. They deserve great credit for what they have done. It is one of the finest feats of the war. Rufus King, Brigadier General Commanding Post. End quote. Another print contained the following remarks. Quote, Two regiments of Stoneman's Cavalry, the 2nd New York Harris Light Cavalry, and the 12th Illinois, after accomplishing the duty assigned them of cutting the railroads near Richmond, made their way through the country to this place. The boldness and success of their movements surpass anything of the kind ever performed in this country. Various opinions are entertained with regard to General Stoneman's expedition as a whole, some believing it to have been a grand success, and others a conspicuous failure. The former look only at what was actually accomplished, the latter only at what they think might have been done. While all admit that the destruction of property and the severance of communications were a serious blow to the enemy, most persons agree that the general made a mistake in dividing his command. Had he kept his forces together, he was amply sufficient to have broken all railroad and telegraphic connection between Lee and Richmond for at least a whole week and he could have routed any cavalry force which could have been brought against him. As it was, by dividing his strength, he made each party too weak to effect very great damage, and exposed them to great danger of capture. The following is a summary in tabular form, as clipped from the New York Herald, of the work accomplished by General Stoneman's expedition. Bridges destroyed, 23. Culverts destroyed, 7. Ferries destroyed, 5. Railroads broken, places, 7. Supply trains burned, 4. Wagons destroyed, 122. Horses captured, 200. Mules captured, 104. Canals broken, 3. Canal boats burned, five. Trains of cars destroyed, eight. Storehouses burned, two. Telegraph stations burned, four. Wires cut, places, five. Depots burned, three. Towns visited, twenty-five. Contrabands liberated, four hundred besides the destruction of large quantities of pork, bacon, flour, wheat, corn, clothing, and other articles of great value to the rebel army. End quote. Battle of Chancellorsville But it must be borne in mind that General Stoneman's grand raid and ride 
were only the background of a bloody tableau in the wilderness country around Chancellorsville. The last days of April witnessed the stratagem and skill of General Hooker in his advance upon the enemy's position. A feint of crossing his entire army to the south side of the Rappahannock below Fredericksburg completely deceived the enemy, who at once withdrew his forces from the upper fords of the river. This was Hooker's desire and expectation. Three corps, commanded respectively by Generals Howard, Slocum, and Meade, had been sent up the river, but marched at a sufficient distance from the hostile southern bank to avoid all observation. Arriving at Kelly's Ford, they began to cross, though it was in the night, and the men were compelled to wade in water up to their armpits. The moon, which shone brightly, assisted them most of the night, but went down before the entire force had crossed, when crossing had to be suspended until morning. Pontoons were brought up and laid, and so the remainder of the infantry and the cavalry corps crossed pleasantly. The column advanced towards the Rapidan, and Generals Howard and Slocum's commands crossed this stream at Germania Mills, and General Meade's at Eli Ford below, and then all marched on roads which converged to the Chancellorsville House, a large brick edifice which was used as a mansion and tavern situated in a small clearing of a few acres and which with its few appendages of outbuildings constituted the village known by that name other forces including general pleasanton with nearly a brigade of cavalry who guarded the flanks of the advancing columns had crossed the river and taken their position near chancellorsville by this wily movement General Lee's position on the Rappahannock had been entirely flanked, and, flushed with incipient success, General Hooker followed his great captains, and in the evening of the 30th of April he established his headquarters in the historic brick mansion above described. So completely absorbed was our general with the brilliancy of his advance, that in the moment of exultation he forgot the dangers of his situation, and issued the following congratulatory order. Quote, Headquarters, Army of the Potomac, Camp near Falmouth, Virginia, April 30, 1863. It is with heartfelt satisfaction that the commanding general announces to the army that the operations of the last three days have determined that our enemy must either ingloriously fly or come out from behind his defenses and give us battle on our own ground, where certain destruction awaits him. The operations of the 5th, 11th, and 12th Corps have been a succession of splendid achievements. By command of Major General Hooker, S. Williams, Assistant Adjutant General. End quote. It would seem as if the general had overlooked the fact that his army had but eight days' supplies at hand, that a treacherous river flowed between him and his depots, that he was surrounded by a labyrinth of forests 
traversed in every direction by narrow roads and paths, all well known to the enemy, but unknown even to most of his guides, and that many of his guns of heaviest caliber and most needed in a deadly strife were on the other side of the river. General Lee had undoubtedly been outgeneraled by Hooker in this movement, but he appeared not to have been disconcerted. Leaving the heights of Fredericksburg with a small force, he advanced toward Chancellorsville. May 1. The first collision between the contending forces took place today. General Sykes, with a division of regulars, was dispatched at nine o'clock in the morning on the old pike to Fredericksburg. He was followed by a part of the Second Corps. Sykes had not proceeded far before he encountered Lee advancing, and a sharp contest ensued, with heavy losses on both sides. The rebels having the best ground, and being superior in numbers, compelled our men to fall back, which they did in tolerable order, bringing away everything but their dead and badly wounded. But the enemy followed our retreating columns, though cautiously, and filled the woods with sharpshooters. They also planted their heavy batteries on hills which partially commanded the clearing around the Chancellorsville house. This gave them great advantage. They were also greatly elated with the success which had crowned the first onset. This was Hooker's first misfortune or mistake. The first blow in such an engagement is quite as important as the last. This first movement ought to have been more powerful, and ought to have given to our men a foretaste of victory. But we had lost prestige and position, which undoubtedly weakened us not a little. The night following passed quietly away, except that the leaders were laying their plans for future operations. About eight o'clock in the morning of the second, it was reported that a heavy column of the enemy was passing rapidly toward our right, whither the Eleventh Corps had been stationed. This movement was hidden by the forests, though the road over which the column passed was not far from our front. A rifled battery was opened upon this moving column, which, though out of sight, was thrown into disorder at which time General Burney made a charge upon them with such force as to capture and bring away five hundred prisoners. By successive and successful advances, by sunset our men had broken this column and held the road upon which they had been marching to some scene of mischief. But the evil was not cured, as other roads more distant and better screened were followed by the wily foe. Just before dark, Stonewall Jackson, with about 25,000 veterans, fell like a whirlwind upon the 11th Corps, which he had flanked so cautiously and yet so rapidly that our German comrades were taken by surprise while preparing their suppers, with arms stacked and with no time to recover. It is not at all wonderful that men surprised under these circumstances should be panic-stricken and flee. 
Let the censure rest not upon the rout, but upon the carelessness that led to the surprise. Whole divisions were now overwhelmed by the rebel hordes that swept forward amid blazing musketry and battle shouts, which made the wilderness resound, and a frantic stampede commenced which not all the courage and effort of commanding generals or the intrepidity of some regiments could check, and which threatened to rout the entire army. This unforeseen disaster changed the whole program of the battle and greatly disheartened our men. However, the ground was not to be abandoned so ingloriously, and though our lines were broken, and the enemy had gained a great advantage, heroism was yet to manifest its grand spirit and to achieve undying laurels. The sun had gone down, refusing to look upon this Union defeat and slaughter, but the pale-faced moon gazed with her weird light upon the bloody scene, while the carnage still continued. With the disaster of the Eleventh Corps, General Sickles, who was stationed in the front and center of our lines, and had been preparing to deal a heavy blow upon the enemy, was left in a critical position. His expectation of assistance from General Howard was not only cut off, but he was left with only two divisions and his artillery to meet the shock of the advancing hosts. General Pleasanton, with his small force of cavalry, being under Sickles' command, was ordered to charge the proud columns of the enemy, with the hope of checking them until our batteries could be suitably planted. Pleasanton, addressing Major Keenan of the 8th Pennsylvania Cavalry, said, You must charge into those woods with your regiment, and hold the rebels until I can get some of these guns into position. You must do it at whatever cost. I will, was the noble response of the true soldier, who, with only about five hundred men, was to encounter columns at least twenty-five thousand strong, led by Stonewall Jackson. The forlorn charge was made, but the martyr leader, with the majority of his dauntless troopers, soon baptized the earth upon which he fell with his lifeblood. But the precious sacrifice was not in vain. The rebel advance was greatly checked, as when a trembling lamb is thrown into the jaws of a pursuing pack of ravenous wolves. The two determined generals improved their dear-bought moments in planting their own batteries, and getting in readiness also several guns which had been abandoned by the Eleventh Corps in its flight. All these guns were double-shotted, and all due preparation was made for the expected stroke. It was a moment of trembling suspense. Our heroes waited not long, when the woods just in front of them began to swarm with the advancing legions, who opened a fearful musketry and charged toward our guns. Darkness was falling, but the field where the batteries were planted was so level that the gunners could do wonderful execution. And this they did. The rebel charge had just commenced when our guns simultaneously opened with a withering fire, 
which cut down whole ranks of living flesh like grass. As one line of embattled hosts melted away, another rushed forward in its place to meet the same fate. Three successive and desperate charges were made, one of them to within a few yards of the guns, but each was repulsed with terrible slaughter. In many places the dead were literally in heaps. Our resistance proved successful. A little later in the night, and right in front of these batteries, fell Stonewall Jackson, mortally wounded by our scathing fire, as was at first supposed, but more likely by the fire of his own infantry, as one of their writers alleges. Speaking of Jackson, he says, quote, Such was his ardor at this critical moment and his anxiety to penetrate the movements of the enemy, doubly screened as they were by the dense forest and gathering darkness, that he rode ahead of his skirmishers, and exposed himself to a close and dangerous fire from the enemy's sharpshooters posted in the timber. So great was the danger which he thus ran, that one of his staff said, General, don't you think this is the wrong place for you? He replied quickly, The danger is all over. The enemy is routed. Go back and tell A.P. Hill to press right on. Soon after giving this order, General Jackson turned, and, accompanied by his staff and escort, rode back at a trot on his well-known old sorrel toward his own men. Unhappily, in the darkness, it was now nine or ten o'clock at night, the little body of horsemen was mistaken for Federal cavalry charging, and the regiments on the right and left of the road fired a sudden volley into them with the most lamentable results. Captain Boswell, of General Jackson's staff, chief of artillery, was wounded, and two couriers were killed. General Jackson received one ball in his left arm, two inches below the shoulder joint shattering the bone and severing the chief artery. A second passed through the same arm between the elbow and wrist, making its exit through the palm of the hand. A third ball entered the palm of his right hand about the middle, and passing through broke two of the bones. He fell from his horse and was caught by Captain Wormley, to whom he said, All my wounds are by my own men. End quote. The loss of this heroic chieftain, this swift flanker and intrepid leader, was undoubtedly the greatest yet felt by either army in the fall of a single man. Some report that, on hearing of the sad fall of his chief captain, General Lee exclaimed, I would rather have lost twenty thousand men. Admitting that the rebels gained in this battle a great victory, its advantages were dearly purchased by the loss of Thomas Jonathan Jackson. About midnight a fierce charge was made by General Sickles' forces, which proved successful, enabling our boys to recover much of the ground formerly occupied by the unfortunate 11th Corps, and they brought back with them some abandoned guns and other valuable articles from the debris which the rebels had not time or disposition to disturb. 
General Hooker then ordered this exposed position to be abandoned, and by daylight our lines were falling back in good order toward Chancellorsville, but were closely pursued by the enemy who filled the woods. Several determined charges were made upon our retreating columns, which, however, were repelled mostly by the fire of our artillery, which mowed down hundreds as they rushed recklessly almost to the cannon's mouth. But these batteries had been played and worked so incessantly for the last twelve hours that ammunition began to fail, and General Sickles sent a message to Hooker that assistance must be granted him or he would be compelled to yield his ground. The officer who brought the dispatch found General Hooker in a senseless state, surrounded by his hopeless attendants, while general confusion had possession of the headquarters. A few minutes previous to this a cannonball had struck the wall of the mansion upon which the general was incidentally leaning, the concussion felling him to the floor. For some time he was supposed to be dead but soon, giving signs of returning consciousness, General Couch, who was next in rank, refused to assume command, and hence about one hour of precious time was lost. This was a fatal hour. Had General Hooker been able to receive Sickles' message and ordered a heavy force to his assistance, it is thought that a great disaster could have been prevented, and probably a victory might have been gained. But the golden opportunity, which is seldom duplicated in a given crisis or a lifetime, was lost, and the enemy, though somewhat disorganized and badly disheartened by our well-managed batteries, had time during this lull to recover strength. They then advanced again with such power as to compel our men to retire from Chancellorsville toward the Rappahannock leaving the brick mansion a mass of ruins, made such by the fire of the enemy. By noon, General Hooker had recovered his consciousness sufficiently to order the movements of his troops. The fighting on his front was now nearly over, but his position was critical. General Sedgwick, who had been directed to cross the Rappahannock below Fredericksburg, with orders to advance thence against all obstacles until he could fall upon General Lee's rear, while the Grand Army engaged him in front, found it impossible to proceed as rapidly as was expected of him, and was finally repulsed with such slaughter and pursued with such vigor as to be compelled to recross the river, leaving at least five thousand of his men killed, wounded, and captured in the hands of the enemy. No alternative seemed now left to the Army of the Potomac but to beat a retreat and recross the river. On the evening of the 5th, General Hooker held a council of war with his commanders, at which, however, nothing was decided upon. But in the night he took the responsibility of ordering all his forces to recross the Rappahannock which they did in good order and without molestation, and thus ended the disastrous battle of Chancellorsville, with a loss of about 18,000 men on each side, and our remaining troops returned to bivouac 
on their old camping ground on the north bank of the river near Falmouth. This retrograde movement was undoubtedly considered to be necessary in consequence of the impending storm, which set in about four o'clock of the afternoon of the fifth, and rendered the march and night exceedingly disagreeable. The river was swollen so rapidly as to set adrift several of our pontoons, and the act of recrossing, though orderly, was by no means pleasant. The storm was cold and violent, and the roads soon became so bad as to remind the boys of Burnside's unfortunate advance in January. It is supposed by some that the rain explained satisfactorily the conduct of the enemy, who seemed to make no attempt whatever to follow our returning troops. While yet the rain was drenching our weary boys, on the 6th, General Hooker issued a congratulatory order to them and the country, in which are to be found the following characteristic passages. Quote, the Major General commanding tenders to this army his congratulations on its achievements of the last seven days. If it has not accomplished all that was expected, the reasons are well known to the army. It is sufficient to say they were of a character not to be foreseen, nor prevented by human sagacity or resources. In withdrawing from the south bank of the Rappahannock before delivering a general battle to our adversaries, the army has given renewed evidence of its confidence in itself and its fidelity to the principles it represents. In fighting at a disadvantage, we would have been recreant to our trust, to ourselves, our cause, and our country. Profoundly loyal and conscious of its strength, the Army of the Potomac will give or decline battle whenever its interest or honor may demand. It will also be the guardian of its own history and its own honor. By our celerity and secrecy of movement, our advance and passage of the rivers was undisputed, and on our withdrawal not a rebel ventured to follow. The events of the last week may swell with pride the heart of every officer and soldier of this army. We have added new luster to its former renown. We have made long marches, crossed rivers, surprised the enemy in his entrenchments, and, wherever we have fought, have inflicted heavier blows than we have received. We have taken from the enemy five thousand prisoners and fifteen colors, captured and brought off seven pieces of artillery, placed hors de combat, 18,000 of his chosen troops, destroyed his depots filled with vast amount of stores, deranged his communications, captured prisoners within the fortifications of his capital, and filled his country with fear and consternation. We have no other regret than that caused by the loss of our brave companions, and in this we are consoled by the conviction that they have fallen in the holiest cause ever submitted to the arbitrament of battle. This order 
if not perfectly satisfactory to the country and to the authorities, was generally hailed with applause by the army, which recognized in its sagacious rendering of our difficulties and humiliations the meed of praise awarded where it was due. General Lee's order respecting this campaign is also very modest and unique, and is worthy of a place in this record. In it he says, quote, With heartfelt gratification the general commanding expresses to the army his sense of the heroic conduct displayed by officers and men during the arduous operations in which they have just been engaged. Under trying vicissitudes of heat and storm, you attacked the enemy strongly entrenched in the depths of a tangled wilderness, and again on the hills of Fredericksburg, fifteen miles distant, and, by the valor that has triumphed on so many fields, forced him once more to seek safety beyond the Rappahannock. While this glorious victory entitles you to the praise and gratitude of the nation, we are especially called upon to return our grateful thanks to the only giver of victory for the signal deliverance he has wrought. It is, therefore, earnestly recommended that the troops unite on Sunday next in ascribing to the Lord of hosts the glory due his name. Let us not forget in our rejoicings the brave soldiers who have fallen in defense of their country, and, while we mourn their loss, let us resolve to emulate their noble example. The army and the country alike lament the absence for a time of one, Jackson, to whose bravery, energy, and skill they are so much indebted for success. End quote. The two great armies once more confronted each other from either bank of the river, as they had done during all the winter and spring months. On the 7th of May, President Lincoln visited the camp near Falmouth, conferred with his Generalissimo on movements past and future, appeared pleased with the spirit and morale of the troops, and returned to Washington to continue his earnest toil for the nation's life and well-being. During the month, quite a depletion of the rank and file of the army took place, by the mustering out of large numbers of three months and two years' men, and such had been the depressing influences of Chancellorsville upon the country, that the places of these men were not easily filled. To the sagacious leaders in political and military circles, this state of things was not a little alarming. But to the rebel leaders the times were affording opportunities for grand schemes, and for the execution of movements most startling. End of chapter 10, part 2